BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. What do you think? Dude, I love this song. I like this playlist I put together. Let me let you listen to something else. Uh huh. Check this one out. Oh, yeah. That one's good, too. Yeah. But you know what's so much better? What? When it's live. Ugh, you're right, it is. What do you think, Allison? <laughs> you know, I think we can do it. We keep getting people vaccinated, we keep making good progress. I'm giving the green light. <laughs> Never get tired of it, D. Never get to People go, how can you like Lori Lightfoot's public service announcements so much? I just, they're so bad, they're good. Yeah, how can you not? You know, or Wadi. Woohoo! No, that was Lori going, because, you know, of course, the health commissioner tells the mayor what to do, and then the mayor goes, thank goodness she's going to let me do this, as opposed to the other way around. You're going to open those beaches. Okay, okay. Or I'll take your health clinic. Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this is good too. She's kind of funny. I'm just saying. She does a good job. (laughs) It's so funny. Hey, before we go any further, live stream chat listener and Ben Jarofsky show devotee Frank is having surgery at the moment. He's going to be having surgery soon. Frank. Best of luck. We're sending good vibes your way, my man. Thank you. Before surgery, he wants to listen to us. That's bless your heart. Thank God you, God bless him, man. I'm gonna <laughs> wait. Hold on, Frank. I'm gonna send out some good vibrations right now. Good, 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 good vibration. I'm speaking those good vibrations. Decent excitation. My goodness, baritone. I'm sending him out, man, because Frank's my guy. I love that man. So best of luck to you, Frank. Well, hey, your Ben Jarofsky show for Tuesday, June 1st is just moments away. But before we do this, we need to thank our sponsors. Sponsors like SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana. Attention! The Chicago Federation of Labor, our sponsors, as well as the Chicago Reader, chicagoreader.com. For all things there is to know the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what to smoke, all the and more, including... Columns from Ben Jarofsky and our very, and uh, our colleague, Maya Duke-Masova. ChicagoReader.com. Go check it out. And if you want to help out the program, ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky, J-O-R-A-V as in victory, S-K-Y. There you can become a bin head. That's what we call avid listeners of this program. To find out more, ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. And the Ben Jarofsky Show starts right now. It is Tuesday, June 1st, and still live from my apartment in his attic. This is the Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, it's the return of WVON radio personality, David Seaton.
And now your host, former radio personality. <laughs> I mean, it is true. Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Gems Are Tired Tuesday. And here's why. D, you caught me off guard with the former. <laughs> yes, so my resume, ladies and gentlemen, many things I've done in my life. I was a teacher briefly. I was a postman briefly. Okay, I worked in an ice cream factory briefly. And yes, briefly, I was a uh, radio show host until they called me. Hey, kid, get out of here. We don't want to see your little commie hippie face anymore. Sorry, Dave. You caught me off guard with that one. Anyway, great weekend. You have a good weekend, D? Yes. Yes, I did. It's very good. Rumor tells me, I heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend, that you went to the Field Museum. Yeah, I, to- I told you that I went to the Field Museum. Um, Dennis, <laughs> we're not supposed to, we're supposed to pretend we didn't have that conversation. Yes, you're turning into quite the hipster since you moved down to Pilsen. Uh, did you have a good time at the Field Museum? Oh, absolutely. Rode the bikes, had some tacos, went to the Field Museum. It was great. I'm really happy to hear that. Young Dennis is getting out and about in Chicago, and I'm happy for him. Uh, I had a very relaxing weekend. Uh, I read something that actually made me laugh out loud, which is really rare. I was thinking about this because I read a column, and I started the column by saying, uh, I read something in the Tribune that made me laugh out loud, and then immediately I knew that was not That was incorrect. That was an exaggeration because as absurd and stupid as the thing I read in the Tribune was, it did not make me laugh out loud. I was sort of like snort, you know, like, oh, God, this is dumb. But this other thing I read literally made me uh, laugh out loud. So let me set the scene for you, folks. It's Saturday. I'm on the couch. I'm chilling out. I'm reading an obituary of Rusty Warren, a woman I was not really familiar with. I think in the back of my mind, I remember her from a long time ago. She was a nightclub performer back in the 50s and 60s. Had kind of like what a uh, raunchy act for that time. Uh, Sold a lot of comedy records. Talked a lot about uh, sex in marriage and uh, made fun of men and women in marriage you know, all their little peculiarities. She was one of the path blazers in the business of stand-up comedy. The real Mrs. Maisel without Rusty Warren, there'd be no Sarah Silverman or Tiffany Addish, or it'd be hard to imagine a female comic out there. Uh, anyway, uh, they, the New York times had one of her jokes and this was her joke. Uh, and two fellows meet each other in the street. One day, one fellow said to the other, Hello, I'm sorry. Hello there, George. How's your wife? And George said, better than nothing. And now, D, when I heard that joke, I literally, I read that joke. I laughed out loud. And I know, I know it's a sure sign that I'm getting old when I find a joke like that funny. <laughs> but I'm, I couldn't even read it now with a straight face. How's your wife? Hey, better than nothing. <laughs> Come on, D. Dennis is smiling. That's He's old smiling. Time. That's old time. <laughs> That's kind of like a Henny Youngman style joke. Take my wife, please. <laughs> but, you know, I told it to my my wife and she laughed out loud, too. I go, you know, because it could be politically correct. Maybe we should switch. You could just switch it. You could just have two women meet in the street. And one woman says, hey, Deb, how's your husband? And she says, better than nothing. Anyway, that's kind of like the highlight of my weekend, D. You know what I mean? It was a slow weekend. Nothing wrong with a slow weekend. No, no, that's good. <laughs> I just laughed out loud. I still like better than, how's your wife? Better than nothing. 
Anyway, highlight of my weekend. Then I wake up to find that the race to retake Congress is still very much on. Republicans aren't messing around. They're still on the case. They want to take back Congress. They want to take back Senate. They want to set things up to take back the White House. 2024. Dems are like chilling, cruising, sitting back. Republicans aren't playing. Texas new showdown of voting limits. They might as well just put a provision uh, in their uh, constitution that says black people can't vote unless they sign a waiver saying they're going to vote Republican. All right, then you can vote. They got this new stipulation in the bill. No more Sunday drive from church to vote sessions. Well, they can't literally ban that. But no, in the uh, there was many. Um, we talked about this with Jason Lee on the show. Uh, many churches had to uh, get out the vote on Sunday. People hop into a van, drive over to uh, early voting and vote. So now they got a provision in there. Like the person who's driving the van has to sign some kind of legal document saying he knows everybody in the car. It's like, are you kidding me? It's just such a blatant restriction intended to help Republicans. I mean, you could just imagine it was the other way around. And if Dems tried something like that, that infringed on the freedoms of churches, I'm be calling Dems anti-religious. I would be getting one email after another from various Republican politicians, elected officials, et cetera, and so forth, talking about how the Democrats are leftist thugs, the Democrats are trying to take away our religious liberties. The Democrats hate religions, et cetera, and so forth. It's a party of elite, secular, radical, Marxists, blah, 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 blah. And then the Dems, of course, would back off, start apologizing. Well, I didn't they could take it out of context. I really didn't mean that, you know. Or then they would go, like, in the Bill Maher show and say, you know, we really have to wor- worry about the far-left fringe. It's turning off the Republicans. Republicans would have the Democrats on the defensive, my point is. And there they are, just blatantly throwing their principles out the window, going after churches, because the people in those churches, the parishioners in those churches, aren't voting the right way, as the Republicans see it. Republicans just put it out there. Let the chips fall with them. They're not worried about how they look. They're in it to win. i got to give the Dems credit down in Texas. They blocked it, at least for the moment. They walked out. They denied Republicans the quorum they needed to pass the legislation. So now Governor Abbott, right-winger, Republican, says he's going to call a special session to pass the bill. He's determined to pass that bill. By the way, there's no evidence whatsoever that there was any cheating anywhere in the country in the last election. None. No significant cheating, I should say that would in any way impact the election. And yet the stipulation of the Republican Party at the moment is that Donald Trump did not lose that election. It was stolen from him. And so Republicans are responding like robots. And they're enacting bills throughout the country to clean up an election that was never dirty to begin with. All right. So Gregory Abbott is saying that we must pass this bill. I also want to point out Republicans won Texas. So not only is there no evidence that there was cheating, but they already won Texas. Well, they were a little worried. Demographic changes occurring in Texas. Apparently a lot of people from the Bay Area uh, in California are taking my advice and moving to Austin. Austin's hipsters are flocking to Austin. My guess is that Dennis will bike down there any day now 
<laughs> to join all the other hipsters down in Austin. Thing is, so Republicans, they're messing around, already looking at the future. If demographic changes are occurring in their state, they're going to put provisions in the law to deter those Democrats from voting any way they can to hold on to the majority because they play the game to win. Them say they're still going to walk out. I don't know what the rules are, the specific. We're going to bring Jason Lee back in there and talk about the specific rules in uh, Texas, whether Gregory Abbott will get around this by calling a special election. But you know what? If they have to, they'll change the rules. See, the way Republicans play the game, rules are flexible. You use them and you discard them. You vote, invoke them as sacred principles when it works to your benefit to invoke them as sacred principles. And you throw them away when they're obsolete. That's how they play the game. Meanwhile, in the Congress, let's check out the Dems. Senator Manchin, Senator Sinema, two Democrats holding back from throwing the filibuster out. They're saying filibuster is a sacred part of the Senate. It's a sacred institution in the Senate, and they have to preserve it. Dems, you have a very limited chance to pass whatever legislation you want in the Senate. You want the infrastructure bill, got a limited chance to pass it. You want voting rights legislation, got a limited time to pass it. The midterm elections are right around the corner. Republicans are gearing up to take back the Senate, take back the House. If that happens, you won't pass anything. So the time to strike is now. If you believe in the principles of your party, it's somehow you can't get Dems to understand this stuff. And it's like, you know, I'm listening to Cinema and Mansion talk about how we have to be bipartisan. And how we have to keep that filibuster. And I'm thinking, there is no one in the state of West Virginia who's going to vote against Senator Joe Manchin. And no one in the state of Arizona who's going to vote against Senator Sinema on the basis of how they voted on filibuster. Their position in the filibuster is of no consequence to anyone. No one who wasn't already going to vote for them, that is. Vote against them, that is. And as if to prove my point, article in the paper about a special congressional election in New Mexico that's taking place. It's to replace former Congresswoman Deb Haaland, who is now Joe Biden's interior secretary. Let me set the backdrop. Dems hold a very slender lead in the House that enables Nancy Pelosi to be the speaker. I think it's nine votes, but don't call me. It's very slender. Point is, every congressional seat is precious. And then there's the symbolic value of the Republicans of winning in a Democratic district. Biden beat Trump by 23 percentage points in that district in 2020. It would be a huge psychological boost for Republicans to capture this. The candidates in the special congressional election are Melanie Stansberry, the Democrat, and Mark Morris, the Republican. Morris is pounding, pounding Stansberry in the issue of the crime, on crime. Here's what he, the New York Times says, quote, Mr. Morris has spotlighted the rising murder rates in Albuquerque and assailed Ms. Stansbury as soft on crime for supporting a little known proposal in Congress that would cut funding for local police department. Here's what Morris is saying, quote, we've been talking about a lot 
We've been talking about that a lot because there's a lot of bad things in that bill that will make New Mexico more dangerous than Morris, noting that there were already nearly 50 murders in Albuquerque so far this year, double the number in the same time last year. Party leaders are freaking out. Senior Democrats acknowledge that Stansbury has handed Morris a political weapon in a complicated and otherwise sleepy race. They're freaking out. Republicans see blood fired up. Is this legitimate, this debate? Well, yeah, I guess. Her position on crime bills is legitimate. Have they distorted her position? Of course. Do Republicans always distort their opponent's position? Yeah, generally that's the case. Do they care if you accuse them of distorting a position? No, because <laughs> they play to win. Will they win in this case? Dems are scared. And it's not just that there's this red meat crime issue that Morris is pounding to get an advantage in a district that generally votes Democrat. No, there's another matter. Dems are tired. Yeah, they're tired. Another quote. People are just exhausted from the election in November, said State Representative Antonio Mateus, an Albuquerque Democrat. Quote, political junkies don't understand that not everybody is a political junkie. We have to remind our friends and family there's an election. End of quote. You know, I was just having a conversation about this with Lenny Mann at Hoppenworth the other day, good friend of the show, a colleague of mine at The Reader, very active uh, in the indivisible movement on the north side of Chicago. She was telling me the same thing. She's fired up. She's still doing virtual meetings. She's still organizing get-out-the-vote events. She's still connecting people in Chicago with liberals and progressives and lefties from downstate. But she's noting that liberals on the north side of Chicago, you know, that progressive crowd, Lori Lightfoot crowd, they're just tired. They want their life back. They want to go to parties and concerts. We're tired. I'm shaking my head, as the kid says. Dems, Dems, Dem. Hard to win a battle when you're too tired to fight. We got a great show today, everybody. David Seaton. Yes, David Seaton, half of Buchanan. See, we had uh, Atiba on uh, last week, and he's sort of more of the leftist member of that duo. And David is more of the centrist already. He's. <laughs> He's going at it with me on the on the on the pre-show prep. Seaton giving me a hard time. Uh, David Seaton, by the way, came on the show about a year ago. Got to give him credit to. You. He didn't care who was in the. This is the old days we were in a studio. We have lefties, Micah, Miles, all my usual gang of lefties in there. David said, "Bring them on." Have debates with them. He was pushing Joe Biden. He was saying Joe Biden's a logical candidate for the Democrats to to nominate. They shouldn't waste their time with lefties like Bernie Sanders. And I grudgingly, grudgingly come to acknowledge that David Seaton was correct. I think Monroe Anderson was telling me that as well. A bunch of people were coming to the studio oh, and telling yeah. me. Remember those days, Oh, Dave? yeah. Everybody telling me, you're too left, man. <laughs> Far too left. By the way, so David Seed will be a lot of national political talk ahead of us. I just, uh, I had reached out to Rob Markwick. I just want to give an update on this. State Senator Rob Markwick, get a little local news out of the way. Uh, Rob Markwick from the Northwest side of Chicago, good friend of the show, comes on all the time. He's the, uh, one of the chief advocates for an elected school board. This is really on my mind. 
uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, in the city of Chicago. I'm watching this blowback to having an elected school board, and I'm I'm seeing uh, both papers have come out against it, editorials uh, denouncing it. Uh, Corporate Chicago uh, is against it. Uh, Civic Chicago is against it. The mayor of the city of Chicago is against it. Uh, They've created, uh, I'm getting flyers in the mail that are so nebulous, it's hard to know which, (laughs) what the position is. So they're kind of a waste of money. But the only money going out uh, on this issue is uh, against the elected school board. And um, so here's the basic situation in Chicago has always been an appointed school board. That is uh, the mayor of the city of Chicago appoints the members does not even need city council confirmation. Mayor has the authority to name who sits on the school board. Uh, It's always been that way. There was a brief moment in the early 90s when the mayor had to select uh, his school board nominees, was a he in those days, from a list approved by local school councils. But that that provision was eradicated in 1995 when the state passed a law giving Mayor Daley almost exclusive control of the school board. And I've got um, I support uh, the school board bill. I just, in general, support the notion that we should have more democracy, not less. I am, as uh, going back to that last article, a political junkie, so I will always show an interest in the school board race. the The reigning logic of the anti-elected school board crowd is that nobody, except for a few junkies uh, and ideologues of one fl- brand or another, will care about an elected school board election. So it'll be a waste of money, a waste of time. It'll just be decided by a handful of people, a very small portion of people. Uh, So let's not do it. Let's just give control to keep control with the mayor. Um, And I I'm watching this and I'm thinking that there's a subterranean segment of corporate Chicago that hasn't really completely identified itself yet as the opponents to this bill, but they oppose it. And I think their chief reason to oppose this bill is that if you had an elected school board that would limit the control the mayor has over funding. And so it's been explained to me a few times by uh, mayoral aides and um, strategist to various mayors going back to daily in the 90s, that all powerful mayors in Chicago view every nickel that we, the taxpayer, give to the city of Chicago. It's just like a giant pool of money. And mayors are free to dip into that money whenever they need to for whatever they want. So it's not like there's a school budget, the park district budget, the city budget. Yeah, we have those separate budgets, but to a certain degree, there's a certain amount of fungibility, moving the ability to move money around, spend it as you want. And mayors like that. They like that authority, they like their power. And I think the powers that be in the city of Chicago corporate and civic world like mayors having that because they trust the mayors. They don't really trust the other players in this game, especially don't trust the Chicago Teachers Union. So I've got the feeling that behind the scenes, Corporate Chicago is playing its hand and letting uh, the uh, president of the Senate, uh, Don Harmon, who is a senator from Oak Park, 
They're letting him know. And they're letting Chris Welch, the Speaker of the House, who is from also from a suburban uh, seat, also on the West suburbs. I think he's from Westchester, but don't quote me on that. Uh, but he's from the Western suburbs. So we have two officials from the Western suburbs holding the future of the Chicago public schools uh, in their hands, the political future of it's interesting, uh, particularly uh, now the measure passed the house to have an elected school board and it's been stalled in the Senate. Don Harmon has not really weighed in one way or the other. He's playing the role that John Cullerton, the old uh, Senate president used to pe- play. Cullerton was out there openly. It's like Mayor Rahm doesn't want this elected school board. I'm not going to pass it. And so he would just kill it in the Senate. Sometimes they would pass it in the Senate knowing it had to go back to the house. And then it would die in the house. The games they played, like the, the games that Madigan and Cullerton played to make sure that that elected school board bill did not pass. It's, I don't, part of me just wants it just because I'm looking at the lengths to which the opposition goes to kill it. So anti-democratic. It's like the spirit of democracy is being trounced here. I think in the back of their minds, you know, all the arguments that they use to denounce an elected school board in Chicago, they would never dare to use in their own communities. Oak Park has an elected school board. That's where Senate President Don Harmon's from. He's from Oak Park. It would uh, there would be a revolt. The Oak Parkians, Oak Parkers, whatever they call themselves, would be in revolt for people who are outside of Chicago listening to the show. Oak Park is a suburb just west of uh, the west side of Chicago. It's an affluent, upscale suburb. Very proud of its public schools. Somehow or other, they're able to deal with elections to school boards without the whole town collapsing. And yet Don Harmon, mm -hmm. not ready to green light. uh, They like the school board bill. Uh, So uh, I was talking to uh, Rob Markwick about this before we came on the show, uh, before I started the show. And he uh, he says he's going to come back next week to give an update. But right now everything is in limbo on the elected school board uh, bill, according to Mark Wick, in May pass today. Uh, it may just get tabled again. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of different players. There's compromises that have to be reached. The people who support the uh, elected school board are not necessarily ready to join in the compromises. Uh, most, of these comp- most of these issues have to deal with when it will be officially established. So will there, what's the transition year? Who runs the schools and those churches? All these little details that are being used to <laughs> keep Chicago from having elected school board. This issue has been around, oh my goodness, almost from the moment that they gave all that power uh, to Mayor Daly to control the schools in the first place. The issue's been around. Chicago is just not ready for democracy. A little too much democracy. I just wrote about this in a column. I said, I'm, I'm, I've been convinced by the opponents of the school board. And I say we do away with all elections in the city of Chicago, except for mayor and give the mayor the authority to appoint uh, the uh, city council. What the hell? Then we can be sure that we have autocratic firm rule in the city of Chicago. Too much democracy uh, is apparently a bad thing. Uh, My next guest uh, is ready to go, David Seaton. Let's see what he says about too much uh, uh, democracy. Is he in favor 
I got a feeling that I, I don't know if David Seaton has ever I've ever had a conversation with him. So I'm, this is acting as a prelude. Should we have democracy in the city of Chicago like they have in Oak Park where Don Harmon uh, lives like they have? I think I think Chris Welch is from Westchester, but whatever West suburb he's from, I can't remember if it's Westchester. They have an elected school board there. So we'll be interested to see uh, what David Seaton has to say on this and the other issues of the day. We'll bring him on. David Seaton, the more centrist uh, half of the Buchanan and Seaton show on WVON, soon to be a podcast, maybe perhaps Atiba was talking about that when he was on the show last week. Can't have one on without the other. Atiba was on last week and immediately reached out to David Seaton, a good friend of the show, uh, to have him come on. It's been too long, David. Welcome back, Cotter. How are you, my friend? Thank you for having me back. Yes, I'm staying well. I had a very relaxing weekend, as I stated at the start of the show, and I'm ready uh, to get back in the thick of things uh, with all the issues of the day. Uh, I asked you what's uh, top of your mind these days, uh, and you told me you had to do with the care of the elderly, which is an issue I'm happy to discuss. But before we do that, I just wanted um, to talk briefly about something else that's a little, uh, I don't know, more frivolous, perhaps. I don't know. Uh, it's been on my mind, and that is the favorite songs of 1971. I did a special this weekend. I dropped it with my good friend Mick Dumkey, and everyone who comes on has been asked to uh, give their three favorite albums, records, uh, from 1971, which is a, a big year in music. Uh, and David, uh, David, you responded um, with albums that are, that are among my favorite. Al Green gets next to you, uh, which uh, was on my list as well. We've got one of the greatest guitar solos of all time. And next to you with, with uh, Atini Hodges, Isaac Hayes Shaft, the, the album really, really had album. great album, uh, had one of the greatest songs of all time, Shaft, the theme uh, to uh, the movie Shaft. And then, of course, the album that everybody has, Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. Uh, literally everybody that's responded has put that on the list. Some people, most people put it as the number one album of the year. Uh, other people put it somewhere on the list. And my only point, David, I'm, I'm happy that people love the album so much, but I always say, you know, the theme of the album is peace and forgiveness. Exactly. Or it's not the answer. For exactly. only love can conquer hate. And I don't see that being practiced anywhere. In the world. Everybody loves the record, but nobody is paying attention to the message. What do you think of that, David Seaton? That's exactly right. Uh, we live in a we live in a very uh, confrontational, you know, political landscape, geopolitical landscape. We're fighting over. Uh, fewer and fewer resources. Uh, you know, it's really just it's really just as simple as that. You know, colonialism is is a function of trying to allocate more resources to take care of your people, and that's not that's incongruous with uh, with the theme of the song. Yes, absolutely. And yet, everybody loves the song. <laughs> <laughs> Baffling. Everybody puts that on their list. Uh, you know, I was going to talk about. Uh, this issue of caring for the seniors. But since we talked about uh, the, the sort of the, the strife in America today, let's just start with uh, the issue of what's going down in Texas. Uh, I already alluded to this uh, in my opening remarks. Um, Republicans are gearing up for the 2022 midterms. It's quite clear to me, David, uh, that they're enacting uh, voting laws 
and key states throughout the country uh, to try to, uh, well, limit the black vote in the upcoming election and win the election. I think it's a very obvious strategic tactical move on the part of the Republican Party, whether they get away with it. I do not know. What's your general feelings about what's going on in Texas and other states throughout the country? Well, again, I, I think it's a little simplistic to say they are targeting the black vote specifically. I think their their actual plan is far more nefarious. They've seen that by packing the majority on the Supreme Court, they still haven't been able to overturn Roe versus Wade. They're not going to be able to do it uh, through the through the Congress. Even Trump, he you know, he didn't even push it through with an EO or trying to strong arm the Congress. And what a lot of people don't understand is that if Republicans gain control of 36 or of 37 state legislatures, they can for, they can force a constitutional convention and they can put through an amendment uh, that way. That's that's the far more nefarious thing. Again, to to disenfranchise African American voters or to make it more difficult for African Americans to vote. I am of the mind that if they say you want to get an ID and you don't like that law, go get an ID, vote them out, and have the new people that you vote in, you know, rescind the law. But in the meantime, they are they are playing the long game. The long game is they are trying to co-opt the Supreme Court, the White House, Congress, and if they can't get their way through those uh, through those venues, then then they will try and, like I said, force the constitutional uh, convention with the thirty-seven Republican-controlled houses in, in thirty-seven states. And unfortunately, on the left, we're not as organized, <laughs> you know, to. to uh, you know, to combat that they are they you know, Republicans are for the most part one, two issue voters. And right now they are most con- mostly concerned with gun rights and Roe versus Wade. And on the left, you know, we're trying to entertain every special interest and every opinion so we can't get as targeted and a cohesive message so that we can calibrate ourselves on the left to be just as organized as they are on the right. Well, one of the uh Everything you just said, by the way, was an echo, uh, great minds think alike, of what I opened with, my opening remarks, very similar uh, themes. Well, just so the listeners know, I didn't hear your opening remarks. No. You know, <laughs> I just said great minds think alike independently. Uh, I was talking about a special congressional election in New Mexico uh, where it's in a Democratic seat, and yet the Democrats are a little cautious and concerned because the Republican is pounding uh, Stansberry, his Democratic opponent, on the issue of defunding the police, which Republicans think is a winning issue for them, which Democrats um, don't quite know, I think, uh, David, how to deal with right now. There's, they know that there's the left flank of the Democratic Party believes very strongly in that concept of defunding the police but they realize that the rest of the Democratic Party does not agree with it and that independent voters are put off by it. And so Dems don't uh, know quite what to, to do with that. And the Republicans are using pounding that drum in New Mexico. What's your position on defunding the police? You've meant, we've talked about this in the show in the past. Uh, what's your position on it as a political issue as we head into 2022? Just another example of poor messaging on the left. Uh, the, you know, the right, they are very good at calling, you know, the, the estate tax, the death tax, or, you know, Donald Trump was very graphic when he discussed, uh, you know, abortion in the Republican uh, debates and uh, when he was running in 2016. Defund the police, 
uh, again, and I hate to I hate to frame it this way, but this is the only way. This is the only framing that works. The the person who's at the fiftieth percentile is is of average intelligence. That means everybody who's not at the fiftieth percentile is not as sophisticated or not as intelligent as the person. So when you say defund the police, fifty percent of people who are not sophisticated enough to understand the underlying nuance you know, are easily co-opted by Republicans who say someone's robbing your house at three o'clock in the morning. And if the Democrats have their way, you're going to dial 911 and get a busy signal or no one's going to be there to answer the question. Defunding the police just overall is a bad idea. We don't need, in my opinion, we don't need a reformation of policing as much as we need an evolution in policing. We need to fortify police officers with social services so police officers are not going into situations where they're dealing with the mentally ill or they're dealing with issues. Because at the end of the day, the only tools that they have are a stun gun and a gun. So they're going to solve whatever problem they encounter with either the, with the two tools they have in their arsenal, a stun gun and a gun. So we're sending, you know, we're sending police officers to do jobs that they shouldn't be doing. We need to diversify and, and, and like I said, fortify uh, police officers with other professionals that can that are more qualified to deal with non life threatening non you know urgent issues. That's the solution. Unfortunately, defund the police is is too blunt of a of a statement. You know they were trying to you know get a a phrase they could capture in three words because again most people too are not sophisticated enough to understand a very nuanced, very esoteric explanation of what it is defund the police uh, is trying to do. Uh, so again, they dropped the ball on the messaging and they gave the, the Republicans the perfect way to take that, that defund the police message and bludgeon them and accuse them of uh, not caring about the average American. But at the end of the day, they're still crime. They're still criminals. We need police officers. Yeah. Well, and uh, the, reality, the reality is everything you said, the need uh, to divert resources and just a larger picture of things from just sending in uh, armed officers with the stun guns, et cetera, uh, and to using alternative means is so logical and it makes so much sense. But to your point, when you put in the crucible of a political election where issues can get distorted and rhetoric is really sharp and pointed and it is like tested in uh, focus groups for the response that it engenders in people when they hear certain key words, it's really hard to pass the kind of legislation that you need to pass to have the kind of rules and laws and programs that might be better off for us. And this is something I find exceedingly frustrating. The older I get, David, is that it's impossible to, uh, possible such a strong world, it's very difficult to have functioning governments when one party is disinterested, to put it mildly, in anything resembling a solution to the problems we have. I find that as frustrating. Uh, it's, I guess it's part of the same process as those divisions you were talking about at the start of the show, how sharply divided America is. I, you can't even find a Republican to give a market-based uh, response to some of these issues. Your thoughts on all this? 
again, and again, market-based solutions, there, there are some very easy solutions. Have police officers carry malpractice or liability insurance, have it underwritten by Moody's or a third party, and every time you go out there and you use your gun, your insurance goes up. And if you're an irresponsible police officer, eventually you'll be priced out of the profession because you won't be able to pay for your uh, insurance. You know, uh, have have police unions, uh, you know, have to have to uh, have a stake in civil settlements when there's a malfeasance against uh, against um, uh, citizens. So that way, police officers will police themselves. Hey, you're messing with my retirement. You're messing with my livelihood. We can't do that. We can't operate in the same way if we want to do a market based solution. I'm as critical of the left, however, because uh, the left and especially the African-American part of the left. And this is going to be this is going to be hard for some of your listeners to hear because this is a recurring theme. This whole this whole notion of police officers are are the are were the were the the police police uh, departments in the United States were eventually the slave patrols. And that, that, you know, police officers today are just an evolution of the slave patrol. So, of course, they're targeting black people. And that's that's wholly false. We've always had we've always had sheriffs. If you go back, uh, you know, far enough in this country, uh, the original people who came over here from Europe, uh, the original colonizers, you know, that they were they brought over and they had constables that they had in Europe. So there's always been. A, uh, a police force. The actually the the first police force in the United States was established in the 1800s in New York. So it wasn't even established in the South. So it, and the reason why that's germane is because we muddy the waters when we try to it, when we try to introduce every, or we try to evaluate everything through the through the lens of race. That that while that has that's a part of the conversation. That's not the entire conversation. We can sit down as citizens of the United States and say, and it is, it is counterintuitive that the freest country in the world has the most prisoners. And we could just have a, and we can just have a general conversation about how policing should evolve and should be that we should not be policing in 20, in the 21st century, the way we were in the 18th century or the 19th century. That, that's a fair conversation to have. And that's the lens I think through which we can bring a much broader tent of people to the table who are, who are, you know, who, who, and we can have an honest conversation about solutions. Mm-hmm. Well, don't you also think that as part of that conversation, we should be talking about racial attitudes that exist in this country that are, are, are like almost instilled in the people from a very early age through a whole bunch of different sources, media, the family, what they hear at the dinner table and so forth. Well, that's a cultural conversation. That's not a policing conversation. If you go to China China, you know, 99% of the people who live in China are Asian or are Chinese, but they still they still subjugate the Uyghurs to, uh, you know, to unfair treatment. If you go to India, India has a four tier caste system that has existed for thousands of years. And there are people who are 20, 30th generation Indians who are still relegated to the bottom tier of the caste system because they don't have social mobility available to them like you would in a capitalist uh, society. So, uh, so to, to, to insinuate or to infer that, uh, that, in a, that in a racially heterogeneous society, the, the most racially heterogeneous society that, that the United States is, that we're going to be able to deprogram and, and eradicate stereotypes and prejudice based on difference, you know, human, the human condition and the racially 
homogenous uh, countries are, you know, refute that as, as even a possibility. We just have to put systems in place that bad behavior is that people will be held accountable and that bad behavior will have repercussions. Yeah. That, that, that's the thing that we should be concerned about. Um, even Martin Luther King said, we can't legislate matters of the heart. I can't, I can't, I can't pass a law that forces Ben Jarofsky to like David Seaton if Ben Jarofsky <laughs> hates David Seaton for whatever reason. <laughs> but I can pass a law that tells Ben Jarofsky, ben Jarofsky if you don't like David Seaton and you go take his stuff or you, or you, or you hit him in the back of the head with a brick, I'm, you're going to be held accountable. That's that's what we should be concentrating on. Uh, that that's a, a very valid point and uh, very skillful. I'll tell you, David Seat's no fool. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I I I'm not going to quit on this point. Uh, I I do believe that we must address just some of the biases that people have in our country. This has been on my mind a lot lately, and I sent you the article I wrote. Uh, about how the left is silent in the face of uh, anti-Semitism or anti-Jewishness. Let's just call it that. And um, and people don't want to recognize it. And I think it's very similar uh, to uh, the Republican Party's attitude uh, toward anti-Blackism. What do I want to call it? Up? That's basically what it is. And prejudice, bigotry. Uh, and so I feel that you have to address these issues that you can't pretend they don't exist because pretend they don't exist. Uh, they'll come back to haunt you for years and years to come. So I think you, I, I think, yes, you cannot pass legislation that gets somebody to love someone that they despise. Uh, but you can make it part of the larger conversation in the country to get, try to get people to think about sort of the implicit biases they have toward other people. Your thoughts? Specifically as it pertains to anti-Semitism or being anti-Semitic. If I was going to have a criticism of anti-Semitism and I was going to place culpability, certainly there's culpability on people who are anti-Semitic. I would say that Jewish people have done a disservice to their own cause in fighting anti-Semitism by co-opting the, 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 the phrase or, or the co-opting the word. A, the definition of a Semite is inclusive of Arabs. So, um, so imagine for, for just imagine for a moment, just for the thought experiment and using that definition of the word Semitic or Semite, just imagine if the United States was dropping bombs on Israel like we've dropped them on Afghanistan, Iraq, Jordan, Syria. The whole world would be saying, you can't do that to, to, to Jewish people. That's anti-Semitic. But we have not we have not embraced the we have not globally embraced the concept that if mistreatment of Semites is anti-Semitic and that there's this historical there's this historical truth that that we should that we should as a as a globe that we should protect Semites. There is no there is no honest discussion about the inclusion of Arabs as Semites and how we you know far more Semites. And again, this is not a comparison thing, uh, and I don't want it to be, be misinterpreted as so. But certainly, more Semites have been killed by the United States in the last 
two wars in that region of the world uh, than you know than uh, than in other than other races. Uh, certainly more than more more people more Arabs have been killed by the United States than there were Jews killed by Hitler in the World War II. But as a globe, as a as a as a species, we acknowledge the the protection of Jews and that the mistreatment of Jews is anti-Semitic. I think if Jews uh, if Jews expanded that definition of anti-Semitism to include Arabs, that there would be a more inclusive conversation globally. Well, I do believe that there's been attempts uh, by the Anti-Defamation League and other Jewish organizations, limited, uh, but there have been attempts uh, to speak out against uh, uh, anti-Muslim behavior in this country. But I get your larger point. That's why I specifically said anti-Jewish as opposed to anti-Semitic. They want to get into a a discussion of of what a Semite is and what a Jew is in this country, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, But but, but, but that's kind of my point. But that's kind of my point is that if we skirt that issue, that you you very specifically said anti-Jewish, and I understand that you said anti-Jewish because you want to talk about Jew, you know, how, because you're a Jew. So you want to, so you, that's important to you, and I understand that. But historically, we hear about Zionism or or anti-Zionism, which is very which is Jewish. But then we hear anti-Semitic, but we don't we don't globally include Arabs in that conversation. And that very well, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm neither Semitic nor Jewish, but if I was Arab. And I lived in the Middle East and my country was being bombed by the United States for the last 20 years. I might say, hey, I'm Semitic. What's all this anti-Semitic talk? But it only applies to this this small group of people. I'm also I'm also a Semite. So if you're anti so if anti-Semitism is this global scourge that we want to eradicate, then we need to have a conversation about me about me as well. I would imagine that if I was Arab, that I might feel that way. Yeah, I'm with you 100 percent on that. But I was talking about something very specific. Yes, sir. I was talking about something very precise yeah. in the United States, and that always happens. You start talking about anti-Jewishness in the United States, and someone all broadens it. <laughs> nobody, <laughs> nobody wants to talk about. Yeah, Ben, but there are other forms of prejudice. You know, that's what they always tell you. I understood. So, understood. Shut up about complaining about that anti-Jewishness and let some thug beat up a Jew in the street because. But again, I think, I think again, that what you're, what you're, what you're talking about to me is very reminiscent of there's, there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of uh, pushback on, Hey, we can't get an anti anti-lynching bill. And first degree murder is 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 already on the books if you kill someone by lynching them then then that's a then that's a state crime it's punishable by death uh, or whatever whatever uh you know state whatever state maximum that they allow so but but again it goes back to the messaging it goes back to the framing that if you pass a federal anti-lynching bill the 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 worth that that has is that if an individual is not going to be convicted by a jury of their peers at the state level, then you can go back and you can convict them on a federal crime. But that hasn't been, but you know, that's not the discussion and it hasn't been framed that way. It's being framed like you just said, hey, uh, you know, the people on the right are saying we don't need an anti-lynching bill because we've already got first first degree murder is already a crime. So it's a larger discussion. 
And and like you said about, you know, someone beating up a, a Jewish person on the street. That's already against the law. So, you know, so so really the, the flaw in our legal system that doesn't hold people accountable is that when they go through voir dire and they're picking jurors to sit on the jury, you know, the people who are, you know, who are trying to defend these individuals, they want to make sure they get at least one person on there who will say, yeah, it was just a black guy who got beat up, you know, or it was just a Jewish guy that got beat up. That's the flaw in our system that would solve this. You know, do, it, you, can't get tw- you can't get 12 people to look up in the sky and agree that the sky is blue. So how are you, you know, it's, it's probably been uh, unrealistic to expect we're going to put 12 people in a jury box and that they're going to be able to free themselves of their biases and their preconceived notions and judge when somebody beats up a Jewish person or an Asian person or a black person to get them to be sympathetic. So I think there's a, there, there's some other systemic problems that we could address that are, that are a lot more tangible rather than try to culturally get people to see everyone as equal. That's never going to happen. Well, I baby steps. So let's just start with like, just randomly beating up some Jewish guy in the street is bad. Can we say that as a society? Yeah. Come on, come on, people. We could say it, you know, yeah. and randomly lynching a black man is bad. Can we just yeah. say that? Okay. Is that, yeah. I know it's going to hurt a lot of people to say that, but sure. just, I think that's the first step. And so the like, other steps is to recognize that so much of what the policing that went down in my lifetime, my lifetime, David, I'm a little older than you, much older than you, I think. Uh, David loves it when I say that. Uh, <laughs> I was actually around in 1971 when all those great music. They weren't even born yet. Uh, but in my lifetime, I watched, just going back to the policing issue, just the most blatant uh, discriminatory behavior in the treatment of Marijuana use, for instance, one of my favorite topics. And we can't even, like now, uh, Reefer's legal in the state of Illinois. We can't even address that. It's like it didn't exist. It was just a few years ago, ladies and gentlemen, that this, you know, this biased treatment, double standard of the way black people were treated and the way white people were treated came to Reefer existed. So you have to realize and recognize that that's embedded in policing in our country, we have to address that. Just like we have to address the attitudes that people have in this country, the hostile attitudes they have towards Jews or blacks or Arabs, et cetera. And so we have to address these issues. We can't pretend they don't exist, David C. That's agreed. Agreed. Man, you know what? I'm going to take that and I'll put it on a T-shirt. David Seaton <laughs> agreed. <laughs> He's a tough guy to get agreed out of. All right. Now, you started off. I said, what's the first thing on your mind? Here we've been talking for over half an hour. We could talk forever, David Seaton, myself. Yeah. The first thing on your mind, and you started talking about the uh, senior citizens and senior care in this country. And I said, save it for the show because uh, I want to hear you out what your point is. Uh, so the floor is yours, young man. Take it away. Joe Biden in his infrastructure bill proposed $400 billion of additional funding for seniors that was going to uh, increase access to in-home health care if seniors want to stay in their homes. It was going to increase funding for Medicare and the Medicaid. 
uh, for seniors. Full disclosure, my mother had a stroke about 90 days ago at this point. And so I've had to deal with the reality and the complexities and the vagaries of Medicaid and Medicaid advantage, I'm sorry, Medicare, Medicare Advantage, Medicaid, what's covered, what's not covered. I see the uh, the deficits in the system, having dealt with it firsthand, and this isn't you know the first time I've had to deal with this with a, with a senior family member, but it, this is up close and personal. My wife and I are managing this day to day with my mother. That said, I think it's fair for us to have a conversation about the the finite resources that we have available to us as a society, and to make a decision about where best they are allocated. Is it better to, is it better to pay $100,000 for a procedure for someone who is in the, uh, you know, who's, in, who's an octogenarian or a, a novenarian? Is it, is, it, is it better to pay $100,000 for that individual to have a hip so- surgery so they can live two more years? Or is it better to take that money and invest it in schools and education for the people who are zero through 18, because those are going to be the individuals who are going to be matriculating into the job force, creating, they're they're going to be the people who are going to be with us for the next, you know, 70 or 80 years. So I try to be intellectually consistent or ideologically consistent. I, I, I did, I, I'm not going to, while certainly if Joe Biden and, and it, certainly if the bill was passed for the $400 billion that would subsidize and fortify the existing system for seniors, that would alleviate some pressure for David Seaton. That still doesn't address the, the macro conversation that we need to have about a society about where best to allocate our finite resources. Well, let me just say this. It's very noble that you're trying to be intellectually uh, and ideologically consistent. Nobody else is trying to do that. So I would really not worry about that one, David Seaton. Uh, okay, right now, I'm just going to tell you right now, nobody's worried about that stuff. All right. Everybody's got their general principles that they adhere to, but push comes to shove in a very practical situation, it goes out the window. All right. So I'm no different. All right. So we're all the same in that boat. And I always make fun of Republicans because they do it on a daily basis yeah. uh, and they'll do it in the same hour on one issue come back to it a little while later so for instance like st- my favorite is state rights you know they always talk about the localities uh, how should they have the final say on anything and it should not be an overriding authority that tells them what they need to do unless the locality is doing something they don't want then local local rights state rights out the window exactly okay so i wouldn't worry as the kids say, I wouldn't trip over intellectual or ideological consistency. Uh, I would look out for your mom, number one. Uh, that's my advice to you as an old man. My second thing, though, when you were talking, I was bringing back memories of articles that uh, Rahm Emanuel's brother, I don't know if you know this, but Rahm Emanuel uh, has a brother who is a pretty distinguished doctor. Ezekiel Emanuel was a, an advisor in the Clinton uh, years, not Clinton, in, um, during the Obama, in the Obama White House on matters of uh, health care. Uh, and he, for a while, was advocating that he, we should limit the amount of health care. I'm going to do my best to... Uh, summarize, paraphrase what he said, limit the amount of health care that people above the age of 75 get. Uh, because ultimately, you know, to your point, it's they don't have a whole lot of years left anyway. So 
you know, why dedicate all that resources to them? And I think at one point he made, you got to look this up, David, some kind of pledge uh, that he himself wouldn't get treatment after the age of 75. I think as, as the years pass, he gets closer and closer to 75. It's sort of like that ideological inconsistency. I always talk about open window, throw out, shut window. Um, so I have a hard time with that. Uh, I have to tell you, I have a, a hard time with that. And I say this as a person was in a position that you're in right now. Uh, I had my, when my parents were alive, they both passed, but they, um, they staggered on for a while mm-hmm. in a very uh, rough position, you know, sure. medically speaking. Uh, and it was difficult to put it mildly, David, yeah. not using yeah. you as my therapist, but it was difficult to deal with that on many, sure. many fronts. Uh, and yet I just, the will to live is a strong one. And to defy that will to live, uh, if a person has something to offer, like your mom or anybody, you know, uh, even if it's just love for a grandchild or a son or a daughter, I feel that we should obligate that. So, you know, we should keep that commitment uh, and we should not say it's an undue burden, like all the other things that we spend money on. I mean, $400 billion, what's the defense budget? With $400 billion to take care of old people in this country, what's our freaking defense budget? You were just talking about bombing countries in the Middle East. How much money do we spend every time we drop a bomb in the Middle East? I mean, to me, taking care of your mom is far more important than dropping some bomb on the Middle East. That's my position on it. And, and, and both things can be true. Both things can be true. Our, our, our defense budget, our military budget can be bloated and can be gratuitous and unnecessary and should be trimmed back. But as a society also, we have an, we have a, again, we have a finite number of resources that that's, I mean, that's, that's the premise that we need to start with, with any fiduciary conversation. If we start with the premise that we have a finite amount of resources, then we as a society have to have a conversation about where best to allocate those resources. It is not possible to, take care of senior citizens and give them every single thing that they want and take care of every single human being who's born and make sure they get an excellent education and make sure that, you know, all of the other, you know, priorities of of everyone is going to be, uh, is going to be met. We're going to have, they're going to have to always be some hard choices. And at the end of the day, you, Alec, you, you invest in the things that are going to give you the highest return on investment. It's, you know, speaking again, selfishly to kind of echo what you just said, I would love for my mother to, to live for as long as she, as she can. And yes, if I was going to be 100% selfish, I'd say, guess what? If my mother can't afford it and I can't afford it, damn it, we're spending trillions of dollars in the war. So if we got the money to do that, then take care of my mother. Uh, if everyone said that, you know that, that again. We I think we just have to be uh, we have to be realistic. Certainly, what you just said a moment ago. Yeah, we spend all this other money, and we want our mother to be here as long. Everything that you said were in, was everything you listed was intangible. Love and being there for my you know for my for my mother being there for our grandkids or you know all of these other things that are intangible and those things are great. Uh, they have they have some they have value and they have worth. But as a society, 
no one else cares about my mother being there for her grandkids. You know, that's something that I want. And that, and that goes, and that goes to, a, to a much larger conversation about just right and wrong and how we navigate through the decisions we make about going about, you know, we have to look at this from a, our individual relativism and cultural relativism. You know, we don't, individual relativism leads to anarchy. Cultural relativism leads to anarchy. So we need to have a, a very fact-based, dispassionate way that we approach how we allocate the finite resources that we have. And, uh, you know, taking care of centenarians and giving them another two years that's going to be, you know, a, a huge cost. I'm simply making the argument that there's a better way to allocate those resources for the for the for the good of all. All right. And before we move on, I'm just going to close with this position. If everybody articulates, you said, if everybody articulated this uh, view of the world, uh, which is uh, a comeback I get all the time, and I, to which I would say, if everybody articulated this view of the world, we wouldn't be dropping bombs in the Middle East. Agreed. If everybody articulated the right thing to do, we'd be spending the money uh, helping old people. And I'll just. Let, what would Marvin Gaye say? Okay. All right, Marvin. <laughs> Drop bombs on the Middle East or take care of David Seaton's mom. Marvin, 100% take care of David Seaton. Guaranteed. The man was shot in 1984 by his insane father. But I just have a feeling he'd be on the side of taking care of your mom. All right. I got to. I have to ask. I, I sent you the article. Love to get your thoughts about this. Like, let's pretend it's WVON on a Friday night, and the callers are all calling in. Uh, Naomi Osaka, the great tennis player, yes, uh, from Japan, just dropped out of the French Open. And I know this is a political con a talk show, but there's a lot of political ramifications. The sports story. Uh, she first said she there's a provision that the great tennis players are supposed to follow, which is that they meet with the press uh, after their matches. She said she would not do that because uh, it was um, uh, too mentally uh, damaging for her. Yeah, it would feed her depression. Uh, the, the, the authorities uh, in the women's tennis circuit said, if you, we're going to fine you, and if you don't do it again, we may kick you out of the tournament. And to which she said, you know what? You can't fire me. I quit. I'm leaving the tournament because I just can't deal with the pressures. Uh, this is front page story in the New York times. It's being discussed on the internet, like crazy sports talk shows. Everybody's talking about this in the world. David Seaton, your thoughts. On I, think, I, think the, Go ahead. I think the phrase that I used in our pre-show discussion was the fragile sensibilities of this gen of this generation that's coming up. Uh, I like the, I like, uh, was it Billie Jean uh, King who said yes. in the article that uh, pressure is a privilege? Uh, you know, Naomi Osaka made $51 million last year just from endorsements. She is in a privileged position and the privileged position that she is in comes with pressure. I do admire her for just saying, Hey, I couldn't take the pressure, so I'm just going to I'm going to remove myself from the French Open rather than try to buck the rules and get the you know get them to change their rules for her. I appreciate her at least being that and you know intellect or, or uh, you know ideologically consistent. But at the end of the day, if the rules say you need to be available to the press and you don't want to be available to the press, then you can't participate. And if Naomi Osaka never plays tennis another day in her life, the $51 million that she made last year 
is more than most people will make in several lifetimes, she'll be fine. Yeah. Well put. Uh, you, you could buy a lot of good health care for some old people with that $51 million. <laughs> I'm just saying, David, see, that was well put. Uh, and uh, that was really well put. I, I, I'm for, I, Let's close with us agreeing on something. Uh, as much as I appreciate uh, Naomi Osaka's honesty for having to deal with her mental issues and the fact that she's in a fragile state, it's difficult to handle reporters questions. And as much as I appreciate how obnoxious reporters can be, by the way, this is one of my favorite themes, the obnoxiousness of reporters. And this is from a guy who's been a, a journalist his whole freaking adult <laughs> life. I just throw that out there, but every, I just saw this. I was watching my wife and I watched mayor of East town, the real popular HBO show, uh, which just ended. I won't give it away or anything, but uh, it, the, every scene in which a suspect is being uh, led from the police car into the police station, uh, David, is like every other scene in a movie where the local press is like a horde of locusts descending and barking out questions. Are you guilty? Did you kill her? And it just makes reporters look terrible you know what i mean and i was i just every time i see it i go up oh, here we go again looking bad again in another show so the evil press whore insensitive unfeeling but that's kind of what uh osaka is getting at because you know i don't david i don't know if you're a sports fan but uh in the after every there's really nothing like it so after a game the sportscasters come around and they rip apart the performance of the players and they'll say, this guy choked. This guy can't handle the pressure. This guy had a, that was an easy shot. And he missed it. I mean, it's like, I can't think of anything like that. Like I, like in a day-to-day situation, a teacher goes to school and has a rough day with the class. It's not like that show that, you know, there's like five analysts ripping her apart, <laughs> Stephen A. Smith, destroying her on TV. Well, so, I, again, I think I think you're missing one variable there, when, and and that's an interesting very uh, contrast that you made between the professional sports player and the teacher. Part of the cachet of the professional athlete is that they are performing for the public. So, if you perform for the public, you are subjecting yourself to the public scrutiny. When you're a teacher. You're not sitting on a television show waving to, you know, millions of people when you have to tell little Johnny to go sit in the corner because he didn't bring his homework to school. That's that's more of a private, uh, more of a private uh, uh, dynamic. So, again, you subject yourself to you subject yourself to scrutiny when your remuneration is a function of how popular you are with said with said community. It's really just as simple as that. And like to like I said about Naomi Osaka. She removed herself. She said, hey, I don't want to do this. And, and, and guess what? The fact that she made $51 million last year put her in the privileged position that she could do that. There's somebody else who's, who's playing in the French Open who's dealing with the same issue, but they can't afford to quit. They, they can't, they can't, they've got to, they've got to play in that French Open so they're able to go to the next tournament and move up in the rankings and try to get $51 million. So I, I, you know, while I am sympathetic to Naomi Osaka for dealing with bouts of depression, I'm not, a, I, I don't have one scintilla of, of empathy for her that she had to, that she had to resign from the French Open. She has enough money to 
get whatever therapy she needs and, and still lead a very privileged, comfortable life. Like I said before, she'll be fine. Yeah, she'll be fine. Uh, by the way, this is just in the in history of sports uh, in my lifetime. Anyway, this is a recurring theme where uh, athletes just get tired of the press and don't want it. To. There was a football player way back in the 70s around the time of Marvin Gaye's What's Going On uh, before David Seaton was born uh, named Dwayne Thomas, who just announced in the middle of the city he wasn't going to talk to reporters anymore. And so <laughs> I still remember this, David, after every game, the reporters, the horde that I just described would descend to the locker room and like put the microphones in front of them. Are you going to talk? Are you going to talk? Nope, I'm not going to talk. There was that fullback who played for Seattle, whose name I'm blanking on at the moment, who just said, I'm not talking to the press anymore. And they were fighting him. So they made, you know, the NFL is the same thing as tennis. They made him. What was his name? I can't remember his name. I can see. Oh, uh. Uh, Lynch, I think his name, last name was anyway. Uh, he, they made him sit in front of the reporters and say no comment. At least he was, you know. Uh, so this is an ongoing thing, and uh, I, I'm, I'm with you though, David. I have to tell you, I'm with you on this one. Come on, this is how you promote your your business. This is, sure. Billie Jean King couldn't believe it. Like, cause she was a, a pioneer in women's tennis and they were begging reporters to cover them. You know what I'm saying? David? The $51 million that she made last year was, was overwhelmingly from endorsements. So she was able to monetize her celebrity and playing a sport by being a brand ambassador for whatever, uh, you know, whatever product she endorsed. And without her, that money, that, that revenue stream goes away if she's not playing tennis. So maybe that'll snap her out of her, uh, maybe that'll snap her out of her, uh, you know, depression when she, when she looks at her 1040 next year and says, wow, I really <laughs> dropped. I guess, I guess I better start doing some more interviews. I guess I better get some defense mechanisms that I can use so that I can manage this emotional minefield of reporters has, I mean, again, in the grant, some people go to work every day and, and their job is just intrinsically dangerous enough that they don't know if they're going to make it to the end of their shift. And so again, that's why I use the word fragile sensibilities. If the, if the hardest part of your job is you have to sit down and let some strangers ask you some questions with a camera and a microphone in your face, so you can make another $50 million this year. I mean, you and I are both, you, you and I are both radio personalities. I, I can't go on VON Friday night and tell VON, hey, I'm not going to take any more of these callers. They're all so mean and acerbic. I'm not going to take any more calls. I'm just going to talk for three hours. No, I can't. <laughs> all right. Uh, that's a perfect segue to telling folks where they can listen to you. Uh, I did that on purpose. Yeah, demands a maestro. Okay. Uh, so tell folks where they can listen to you and. Uh, on Friday awesome. nights on WVON 1690 AM, you can listen to the Buchanan and Seton show from 9 PM through midnight. You can listen at WVON.com. You can listen anywhere on the planet on iHeart's radio. And, uh, and please, those of you who are listening, if you really want to get more of this type of perspective that that uh that i like if you like it if you don't like it if you want to see more of it you can go to my blog seatonspeaks.com i've got anything any type anything you want if you want to listen to audio i've got it if you want to watch video i've got it if you want to read something really uh 
you know, provocative and uh, I got that there as well. Um, the, the blog is uh, 18 months old. So uh, go to Seed and Speaks, become a member and, and you'll uh, get all of my new content will come to you automatically. All right. Very good. David Seaton, thanks so much for making the time to talk to me. You always do. And uh, I thank you very much for that. Thank you, sir, for having me. All right. That's the great David Seaton. And uh, that is our show for today. I want to thank David for coming on. And of course, I want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy of Alton, Illinois. The man that David Seaton and a TV Buchanan, they may not agree on everything, but they agree on this. That back home in Alton, They call him Dr. D. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. 